This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And hey guys, we are here again to talk about films with you again. How's it going, you? Uh, it's going all right. It's going all right. I went outside last night to take my garbage out. Usually I take it out before the sun goes down because, uh -huh. you know, all the animals and shit around here. I don't like to yes. be out in these streets too late. <laughs> but I I forgot and I took it out last night at like 10 o'clock and I looked up and I realized that I can see like every constellation. Like I can see all the stars in the sky. And I love that. it just made me think that like I have been living in cities for so long. Yeah. I forgot that I couldn't see the sky. <laughs> like that's so sad, but so true that like yeah. I don't know. There was just I, I just had a moment with myself where I was like, oh, this is nice. It's lovely that I'm like back in a place where I can see the full scope of the fucking earth. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, it's it's like you forget that when you live in these big cities with like it's called light pollution, isn't that what it's actually called? Yeah. And I don't know, like it happens when I go down to my parents' house. I think it's also the fact that there's not a lot of like tall trees where they live too. Right. So you could really see the sky. And you're just like, Oh my god, like this is so peaceful and wonderful and Yeah. Why do I live in an apartment complex on you know, in the middle <laughs> of a city where I can't see shit? There are good things about that, too. There are great things about living in cities. We're not capping on cities, but, like, yeah. it's a different space that I'm in right now. And I appreciate the space that I'm in right now. Yeah. I've been having all these, like, existential moments, and I think that's part of it, is that I live in this space now where I have, like, this expansion all around me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Basically, just, you know, took out my garbage and reckoned with the fact that I'm middle-fucking-aged. <laughs> <laughs> well... I'm right there with you because, you know, I catch myself in all these moments where I'm like, yeah, I'm doing this stuff. Like, I'm doing middle-aged stuff, you know. Besides the fact of, like, just getting out of bed and, you know, groaning and that kind of thing. <laughs> I don't I don't have any joie de vivre when it comes to waking up or getting my body moving. I know. You know, I'm into birds, right? Like, we talked about this a long time ago. <laughs> I got into bird watching, much like a lot of people during the pandemic. We talked about it, like, I don't know. It was a while ago. It was a while ago. I don't know if it was last year. And basically here in the in where I'm living right now in Georgia, there's a lot of birds. It's like a big bird area, I think. There's a lot of trees around me. And so I just decided, hey, I'm going to put out a feeder and put some like black oil sunflower seeds in this. Squirrel Buster is the name of the feeder, by the way. It's called the Squirrel Buster. <laughs> I like how even in the world of bird feeders, they're like, we're going to have a class war. Like squirrels can fuck off. This is birds only. <laughs> That's what I really figured out is like part of the strategy of bird feeding is trying to get squirrels to not eat the seed. Right. Okay. So I bought an apparatus called the Squirrel Buster. It's actually technically called the Squirrel Buster Mini. Okay. <laughs> and it's like a tube feeder that has, it's on a spring. So basically if a bird sits on the perch, it can eat the seed at the bottom. Right. But if a squirrel gets on it, I guess it weighs too much. And so it'll shut. That's the technology. Right. OK, so not only are bird feeders entering classes territory, they are straight up body shaming squirrels. They're like, get your fat ass off of this fucking feeder. So now I guess in response, squirrels are they have complex body image issues. One of them is like writing an article for Bustle. Here's the thing. That alone sometimes doesn't actually work because the squirrels figure out how to get up the pole and then hang upside down. Ah! That's what I figured out. Look, I'm on the squirrel side. I'm on the squirrel side. I gotta. I just got to say, yeah. I love these smart little <laughs> bastards. They are crafty as hell. So then I went out and bought a baffle, which is basically like it's a cone that wraps around the pole that is also wobbly. Right. So they can't 
even try to jump on it. They can't get any purchase at all. Right. And I also have this bird feeder pushed away from the house and from trees so they can't jump from anything. So I've really figured out how to only have birds at this feeder. And let me fucking tell you, these birds are eating me out of house and home. (laughs) I have to fill up the bird feeder every fucking day. Damn. Sometimes twice a day. What? Yes. And I'm not... I know it's not squirrels because I watch it. I actually watch the bird feeder a lot. And I also technically have a camera that's like pointed outside. Like it's like on the outside, but it somehow like catches the bird feeder. And I sometimes I'll look at that footage. I'll be like, there's not a squirrel. It is literally all birds. It's birds eating this bird seed. And they must be coming from miles away, telling their friends. You know why? Like the word is out. And they're like, this motherfucker has hooked us up. She's got a baffle. (laughs) She is on our side. She's here for us. Like, they put out the clarion call. Yes. Like, if you want some black oil sunflower seeds or some suet or whatever the hell. Well, I'm about to get to the suet. (laughs) So I'm like, well, okay, let me give him another station to to feed from. It's like a golden corral at my house for these birds. I'm like, yo, hit up the bird seed. Hit up the suet. I got a little bird bath. It's like, go to your stations. Do all your stuff. (laughs) So I went and bought a suet cake thing. You know, it was like a cage, right? And you can hang it. So I put it in the backyard because I was like, let him come to the backyard too. Let's get a little, you know, flow in here. So (laughs) the suet cakes are supposed to last for a long fucking time. They're basically, I don't know if you know what suet is. I'm sure people do. But it's basically like Crisco or something with seeds and corn and shit in it. It's for for their fuel so they can like have food through the winter or they need the fat or whatever. I have to replace those every couple days and that shit should technically last for a long time because they're very dense. Okay. So what you've done is, first of all, I love the double dare obstacle course around the whole house for the birds. <laughs> you like, take a bath, eat something, see if you can get away from the squirrel, go to the suet station, slide down into the goop, <laughs> pick out your ticket. Like, double dare obstacle course. <laughs> you've also set up a fucking McDonald's for these birds <laughs> with these suet cakes. And as we know... From human experience and our own psychological experience, (laughs) they are going to chow the fuck down on that suet whenever they get a chance. Yes. So there is a literal gang of birds. They're these (laughs) red-winged blackbirds. And I posted about them on my personal Instagram like a while back, and I had people being like, oh my God, those birds are nasty. They will fuck you up. They will push all the other birds away from the feeder. They will attack you as people. Like, they're afraid of nobody. The minute I I saw one at the feeder, I took that picture, I posted the story, and then literally the same day, I saw probably like 200 of them in the backyard. (gasps) And they were all fucking with the suet feeder, like knocking it over. I mean, they were swinging it. Like, I was like, damn. Like, they're, like, old-timey boxers, you know, just basically, like, sitting around the punching bag, like, being fucking rough. And I was like, well, these are the birds that are eating all the suet, and they're doing it in these giant flocks. Like, they're just, like... And they were all over the deck, like, sitting on all my patio furniture. Like, they're just like, "We, we live here now. Like... This is our house. So you set up a McDonald's and now you're in a turf war with some birds. And the turf war is between you and the birds. It's not even between the birds and like another flock of birds. It's like, hi, I live here. This is my home. I'm the one who set up the food situation for you. Can you give me a small break? And they're like, nah. And then they're like picking their teeth with a fucking knife. (laughs) Picking their little beaks. (laughs) Like, nah. Truly. (laughs) You're just going to keep bringing us some suet. Yeah. And all this shit's going to stay cool or else. Yeah. They're all the Ray Winstone of birds and they're just (laughs) gruff, mean, and they're bullies apparently. And, you know, the other thing is that there's all these other birds around too. So like there are these, you know, uh, they're called tufted tit mice. Don't even try it. We've already been down this road. We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, we don't know the bird names. I think they're called, uh, it's a tufted tit mouse. But I guess maybe if there are multiples, they're mice. I don't know. Somebody correct me. But they're so cute and little bitty and they're very sweet. And just, I've seen the blackbirds fuck with them. Like, I've seen Uh -uh. them be like, get out of here. Like, (gasps) they're sitting on the the bird feeder and then like 
the flock comes and the birds freak the fuck out. Like, oh shit, the fucking, the dudes are in town, you know? And I'm like, damn, dude. One of the blackbirds lands and it has like those pink rollers in its fucking head. (laughs) It's riding another bird. (laughs) Like, I have a chauffeur. Like, get that little bitch. (laughs) But that's the thing is that like, there's no way to not feed them all, right? So it's like, I want to try to get something that they won't eat, but the little baby guys will eat. I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way, right? Once you start feeding birds, Animal Kingdom takes over and it's all a mess. But honestly, I have never bought so much bird food in my life. (laughs) And it is like a daily task for me to go replace the fucking seed because I'm like, they're devouring it. They're devouring this food. Listen, as your friend, I got to say, I do want you to retire one day. (laughs) And these birds and this bird seed situation, it's too cost prohibitive at this point. (laughs) Like we are talking... We're going to have medical bills to pay. Yeah. We got... <laughs> like, imagine you going in and being like, I do need to get this cavity filled, but I have spent $500 in birdseed this month. You you are eventually going to have to make a decision about how much do you love birds in your yard versus how much do you want to retire. <laughs> I know. And I'm just sort of like, now they expect it, though. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, take all the shit down and be like, that's it. Y'all have eaten enough. Yes. Because look, you're already a people pleaser. You can't also now be a bird pleaser. (laughs) Cut them off. (laughs) Stop buying seeds. Just take everything and put it inside the fucking garage. They are done. The cash cow is closed. It's closed. Just shut them off. You cannot be a bird pleaser. A bird pleaser. Yeah. (laughs) You know... You're right. I, I really can't. And I mean, there's the neighbor has a bird feeder too. Yeah, the let way. them get fucking mo- mobbed by goddamn 200 birds. Well, and the funny thing is, is that she doesn't fill the feeder up all the way. <laughs> so she keeps them guessing. She makes it like a third of the way up or like she'll put in like half of it. And I'm just like, damn, that's cold. Yes. Like, they're basically like, no wonder they're at my house because she's like, rationing the seed because she knows they're just going to gorge themselves. She's on an austerity budget and you're like gold kingdom right here. (laughs) We always got suet. We always got feed. (laughs) You got to break the pattern. You can still look at their wings. They will still show up and be like, oh damn, it's empty. Like you can still look at their wings and like their little marks and shit. Even if they're mad about it, you can still do the thing that you want to do, which is bird watch. If you're not letting them eat you out of house and home. I'm like, will they though? Will they still come by if I don't give them food? Look, they might not, but that's okay. You don't need these birds love. (laughs) You have set up a situation where you are destined to make yourself feel bad in some way. Oh yeah. Because if you stop feeding them and they stop hanging out, you're going to be like, fuck, I fucked up. But if you keep feeding them and then you can't pay your rent, you're going to be like, fuck, I fucked up. I don't know why I go to a therapist. I could just call you. You could just tell me literally everything about myself just through the birds, through the bird situation. We will use a bird metaphor anytime we need it. (laughs) But you got to cut this shit off at the knees. Well, we're going to figure this out because I know I'm fucking tired of hauling around a giant (laughs) bucket of bird seed. I like the idea of feeding them sometimes, like the occasional uh, foray. Little snack. Into bird feeders. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that. Keep them on their toes. Yeah. They're used to it. They're wild. They're used to not being... This is the other thing. I think these birds have have started maybe losing their minds a little bit because they're not used to eating like this good every day. Oh, I know. I know. So for the sake of the animal kingdom... Yeah, I notice in the neighborhood, there's a lot of like wild animal things. Like there's things to attract bees, things to attract stray cats, things to attract birds. And I'm like, it's a new era. Because I can remember when we were growing up, nobody gave a fuck about animals. I hate to say it. It's so true. Like growing up, especially in the 80s, I was like, no one cared about animals like this. (laughs) Like, am I wrong? Especially wild animals. (laughs) They're like, oh, you're wild? A bird feeder? What the fuck? (laughs) Bird feeder. I know we would make bird feeders at school and shit. Like, here's a little project we did. It's a bird feeder, and our parents would just throw it in the garbage. Like, I'm not feeding birds. <laughs> the hell you think I am? <laughs> yeah. But also, I have to say, I've noticed this trend in my own neighborhood too. When the original wildlife guy that I eventually had to let go was here and setting traps and like trying to do the have a heart thing with all their groundhogs. He would look in their little dens, their nests, and say, there's a lot of food in here. 
And I was like, where are they getting this food? And then one day I saw my neighbor throwing an actual bucket full of like apples and banana peels and like feeding the wild animals. Yeah. So like that's why the deer are partying and breakdancing in my yard. Yeah. And that's why the groundhogs were like, yeah, we're setting up shop because like people are actually feeding wild animals now. Yeah. And there's a moment too where I think about it because I'm just like cognizant of sort of the whole idea of food waste and I hate food waste and I, you know, there's times where I'm just like, you know how it is, you buy the box of spinach and you don't eat it and you're like, ah, this is so wasteful. I don't want to throw it away. Maybe if you just throw it in the backyard, somebody will eat it. But then I realized too that that is sort of in a way disrupting something else, right? In the wild. And it does cause problems sometimes. So it is like thing where I'm like, I don't know. I'm trying to be a good citizen. Yes. But sometimes it is tough because you're like, you know, that's why they tell you not to feed the wild animals and like, national parks and stuff because it's yeah. like then the animals get used to it and then they start becoming aggressive towards people because they want the food. Exactly. I've definitely chucked an apple or two in my backyard because I'm like, well, I'm not going to eat it because it's mushy. Yeah. But I don't want to waste it. So I've thrown some food in the backyard, but I also know that when I'm chucking that fucking apple back there that I'm writing my own ticket to having to have some weird guy come to my house and set a trap. Exactly. So it's like, what what do I want to do? Would I rather have the animals find their shit? I know that it is well within my ethos and yours to want to take care of things and people to our own detriment. Yeah. And now that you're you're at the beginning of this road, so I just want to put up a roadblock for you and just say, <laughs> reconsider. Otherwise, you are going to be spending thousands of dollars to get bird shit cleaned off of your roof and your car and your deck. Look, I will send you a little tin bucket for compost, and you can throw those scraps right in there. You do not have to use them to feed the wild animals in the city of Atlanta. Well, listen, we're going to figure out this bird situation. I just, I think that there's a happy medium between starving them out and giving them an endless buffet. Yes. There's got to be a happy medium there. I'll figure it out. I will say I appreciate your kindness and your generosity And this is one of the ways that you exhibit love in your life. And that is something that I just love about you. And if you can't afford to retire because you've been feeding birds for 20 years, you can move in here. (laughs) You can move in here any day. You know that I'm always ready for you. I bought this house so that I can help take care of all my friends who are wilding out. <laughs> their money right now because we're in a pandemic and we just need a little bit of love. I'm like, look, this place will always be open for you. We will have a little commune. We can golden girls it. And I will show you how to compost and make some dirt so we don't have to have COVID deer in my backyard or COVID rats. <laughs> backyard. We'll work it out together. I love how every episode essentially comes back to, if you become destitute, you can move in with me in the woods. Like, this is like every, all of the (laughs) advice that you ever give me is basically (laughs) like, I'm always headed towards this, like, financial disaster and you're like, just come live with me. (laughs) You know, we'll be together, it'll it'll be fine. I'm like, you know what? This is actually really comforting. Yeah. To know that if I make bad decisions, I have a place to go. You got a place to go. Thank you for offering every episode. I appreciate it. Look, it's always open and it's because, look, I'm going to need it too. It's it's to my own selfish benefit <laughs> because you know damn well that I have spent too much money here already and I don't even have a kitchen. I don't even have like a whole house or life here and I have just worn myself and my bank account out. So it's to my own mm. benefit as well. That'll be like, yeah, if I had some friends here and we all just want to like, you know, get hospital gurneys with flags on them and that's what we want to <laughs> spend our money on. Then we can do that together and not feel bad. If we want to go broke feeding birds, we can do that together. You got my support in that way. Look, you got our listeners wanting to join your commune too. So that's how enticing it is. It's it's a really, truly a great offer. I'm coming up there to get apples and coffee in another state. Yes. It's happening. Enough of these bad decisions for me and I will be headed to your house. Too sweet. Yeah. Well, then in that case, I take it all back. Keep feeding those birds. <laughs> and I'll see you in a year. <laughs> I miss going to the movies with you, so I'm going to start encouraging you to buy some birdseed. I love this psychotic psychology. (laughs) Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, Priceline. Speaking of movies. Yes. Should we get into our theme for this week? Hell, fuck yeah. Fucking hell yeah. So, we've just moved out of Black History Month, and now we're doing a couple more special weeks for this week and next week. Why don't we uh, talk about what we're doing? Well, it's Women's History Month. Yes. And again, as per usual, we tend to talk about women and Black people all the time on this podcast. That's just how we are. Mm -hmm. But we're going to shine a little bit of a light for the next couple of weeks on some movies and creators that we really love and want to bring some attention to. So for our first foray into celebrating Women's History Month, we have, I think, a pretty cool theme. Do you want to tell them what it is? Yes, the theme is called Don't Call It a Comeback. Yes. And so we're looking at two early films from creators who have been around for a long time. And so I think that we called it Don't Call It a Comeback because we're just trying to let people know that there are women who have been directing in this field for a long time and have had varied careers. And they might be people that you don't know about or you do, but maybe you only knew about one or two things. So we just kind of want to shine a light on women who have been doing this for a long ass fucking time. Yes. And for this week and next week, we're going to be focusing on female directors. And I think it's going to be like a great little showcase of the talent that's out there. I mean, like, obviously, this is a huge sort of buzzwordy type of thing that's been happening for the past couple of years where film culture, the film business is trying to be more inclusive. Trying is the operative word. And, you know, a lot of people are finally realizing that there are people other than like straight cis white men that are making film. And, you know, it's kind of great because it does show the talent and the diversity that's actually out there with these filmmakers, people making movies. And there are people who have been doing it for a long time, especially your director, who is, I think, one of the most beloved directors ever. Yeah. Just across the board, you know, of all genders. I haven't seen your movie in so long, so I'm really happy to have seen it again because it's it really is like once you watch it you're like oh this set the table for so many things yes (laughs) it's crazy i know i hadn't seen your movie in a while either and it's of a moment that kicked off something even like i do think culturally but also for me personally to realize that stories could be told this way and very important to my personal development and professional development but also i think to just ushering in an era of those kinds of stories. And I think that both of the people that we're going to focus on today have been revolutionary figures of their time. Yeah, and both were kind of operating separately in these different eras of filmmaking. So, you know, French New Wave, 90s independent cinema. Mm -hmm. And I think they're both sort of like one of the best examples of both those things. So I'm excited to get into the movies. Well, let's do it then. Okay. So my movie for the theme, don't call it a back is a movie from 1992 it was based on a book which was called don't look and it won't hurt it was written by richard peck but the movie was written and directed by allison anders and it's called gas food lodging the desert is alive it's not what you think for me it's filled with mystery and secrets its sound is the sound of my memories I'll go ahead and get a one-sentence synopsis right out of the way. A single mom and her two teenage daughters traverse the complexities of life and love amid the desolate yet romantic landscape of rural New Mexico. Ah, beautiful. Thank you so much. Like Danielle just mentioned, this film is a big favorite for both of us. A big favorite of mine, especially. I've loved it for so long. I've loved you for so long. (laughs) I saw it for the first time in the 90s, and honestly, I was waiting for the right moment to talk about this movie. Like, with you and Inside Man, this is my Inside Man. I'm like, (laughs) when are we going to drop this one? (laughs) The director of this wonderful film is the wonderful Alison Anders. Oh, I love her. I know. I consider her a hero. I actually have gotten the chance to get to know her a little bit over the years through my full-time job, and she is such a gem. She, you know, was an important and instrumental figure of 90s independent cinema, and certainly one of the best directors of that era, from my money. Absolutely. And she's had such a great career. I mean, she's still working. She works both in film and TV, a lot of TV at this point. But listen, she's a boss. I mean, she's a film professional. 
professor at UC Santa Barbara. She's a, obviously a consummate cinephile. She's a MacArthur Fellow. She's a Peabody winner. She runs a film festival. She has the best taste in records. The best taste. And she's just a champion of film and film preservation. I mean, she's amazing. And she has a dope-ass Instagram where she talks about her life and her friends, and she really just emphasizes so much what's important to her as a creator. And I just, I love her Instagram from a creative perspective. Oh yeah, she's so great. A great family, great daughters, a great granddaughter now, and she's so cool. And I want to point people to this. So Gas Food Lodging is actually on Criterion Channel right now. As we are recording this, it's on Criterion. But she does this really great intro to the movie where she talks a lot about her early years. And part of that was that she was on set for Paris, Texas, which is the Wim Wenders film. And she was really like influenced by him. And apparently she wrote him a fan letter and she sent him a mixtape, which I thought was so cute. I love that. I know. it's You got to see it on the channel. She talks about it and it's awesome. But he invited her and a couple of her filmmaking friends to the set. And basically she kind of learned film from him. And Claire Denis was on set. So she learned a lot about working on set from her too. So it's like, it's it's just kind of amazing, like her life. And, you know, she went to UCLA for film school and especially in the intro that she does on Criterion Channel, she talks a lot about her personal life, which I feel like it flows a lot through her work and very much so in this film, I believe. So Gas Food Lodging was technically the second film that Alison Anders directed. The first one was this great punk rock movie called Border Radio. And she co-directed that movie with her longtime friends and creative collaborators, Kurt Voss and Dean Lent. But Gas Food Lodging was her first solo credit. So I got to tell you, I mean, there's just so many things I love about this movie. The cast is impeccable. Okay, you have the great Brooke Adams, who I saw and fell in love with when I saw the Terrence Malick movie, Days of Heaven. Mm -hmm. That's the first time I ever noticed her, and I thought she was so magnificent in that movie. And in this movie, she plays the mother, Nora. And her two daughters are played by the two goddesses of the 80s and 90s. Okay, Ione Skye plays Trudy, who is the older daughter. And Feruza Balk plays Shade, the younger daughter. 90s queens. The queens, okay? (laughs) And Shade is essentially the narrator of this film. And this movie takes place in the desert in rural New Mexico, which I've driven through and been to a few times, and I love it. It's got that feeling of it's remote, but it's also there's this kind of romantic energy to it. And I feel like this movie captures that so perfectly. Yeah. And we talked about it a little bit when we were talking about Thelma and Louise, but there's a real freedom to that space that I think also comes with the territory. And it really impacts how you see these characters as well, because they're free to be a mess but they're also free to kind of develop their intelligence and their emotional intelligence in a way that you wouldn't be able to do if you were constantly like right on top of people and in a really locked down place. So I think that the freedom of this space was really crucial to the film as well. Yeah. And also too, there's something about, I love stories of young people who live in like rural environments, like are just sort of like living in these very small towns. Yes. Because I lived in a pretty rural area of South Carolina when I was a young child, when I was like in elementary school. And I have such strong feelings about that period of my life. And, you know, when you're a child, like so much of your life is kind of like trying to make your own fun. Mm -hmm. And that goes double for when you live in the middle of nowhere. I feel like this movie captures a lot of that. And honestly, too, stylistically, this movie is as the kids would say, it's a mood, okay? Like, (laughs) this movie was made in the early 90s, and I swear to God, stylistically, all of that is back right now. Like, we're all about some desert vibes. Uh, we're all about those hats. I swear. There's a, there's a scene in the film where Feruza Bulk wears... There's a reason for it. But she's wearing this wig and these, like, silver glitter shorts, like, over a pair of tights with some platforms. I swear I've seen somebody at Stop and Shop wearing that outfit. It's like that mixed with, like, every guy looks like Rattle and Hum era U2. <laughs> you know, like... I fucking love it. Like, <laughs> I love it. Okay. <laughs> Wait, that's killing me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. 
era of style for my money. I love it. Oh, Lord. Rattle and hum, you too. It's like, <laughs> I can't. I'll never get over it. Continue. I'll never get over it. <laughs> I hope I have evoked a feeling and a sense of style by simply saying that. So... A little bit about the plot of the film. So Nora and her daughters are living in this trailer park in Laramie, New Mexico, is the town. And Nora is a waitress at a roadside diner. And you can tell she's working really hard to keep all her balls in the air, right? She's trying to provide for her daughters as a single mom. But also, she's trying to have her own life and her own romantic relationships, too. At the beginning of the film, she's kind of in the middle of this breakup with this man who was married. But eventually, they kind of call it off, and she kind of takes a shine to this really sweet, goofy neighbor of of hers who owns a satellite business, and his name is Hamlet. And he's kind of like, kind of reminds me of like Woody Harrelson, like early Woody Harrelson. Yeah. But even though she's a single mom and she's got a lot of responsibility, I love that she's also trying to have her own thing too, which I feel like doesn't happen a lot in movies and TV about single mothers. They're always sort of like the put upon, like depressed, you know, they don't have their own wants. And she's also like really funny and fucking spry and like the one thing that I love about this movie more than anything is that these three characters yell at each other in the realest like mother-daughter way and she gives it as good as she gets it. Like she's not one of these moms who's like my daughter yelled at me I have to go cry in a corner. She's like fuck you and fuck you. (laughs) Yeah because Nora comes to blows the most with the older daughter Trudy and Trudy is definitely in her bitchy shitty teenager phase Mm -hmm. she wears a leather jacket she skips school always cussing at her mom she stays out late and she sort of describes herself as a girl who quote-unquote has a rep right okay which we later learn is a very complicated issue for her and is something that stems from this horrific sexual assault that she experienced so it's not easy for her to sort of like be in this phase where she's like, I'm, I'm living in a small town and I'm this girl with a rep and I don't know how to like really process it all. Yeah. The Trudy character, I think it was really formative for me to see in the 90s for that reason, because we're not looking at someone who is shying away from her past. And I think this is what Alison Andrews has done so remarkably well as a director of this film is that we're watching Trudy trying to figure her shit out and take some kind of, she's not trying to take power from what happened to her. She's trying to figure out like, how can I have a life knowing what has happened to me, knowing how people see me and knowing that that's not what I want. Like we're right in the middle of that. And I think it's a really cool narrative place to be. Yeah. And you know, at the beginning of the film, Trudy is trying to date this terrible high school jock guy from her school, right? And you realize that like, these guys are not nice to her. And eventually she meets this geologist in town who's just sort of passing through for work. And he's this British guy. His name is Dank, which I (laughs) love a guy named Dank. But Dank is unlike the boys that she has known. He's a little bit more soulful and romantic, and he shows Trudy this sort of tenderness that she was never given by these guys from her town. And she really is gravitating towards him because I think that's sort of what she needs. And not for nothing, I gotta tell you, Dank. Great look on Dank. He's got that Uh, British 90s shoegaze band hair. There's one point where he hangs out of the truck. She comes out with his thermos because he left his thermos on the front of his car. She comes out and is like, hey, you forgot your thermos. And as she's walking away, he kind of leans over Mm. and his hair just kind of flops. His hair flops in the exact way that made me want to have sex when I was in high school. Like, when I saw that hair flop, I was like, maybe I won't be a virgin forever. Maybe one day I'll get one of those. (laughs) I mean, simply the 90s shoegaze hunk that we have all wanted at one point or another. And Robert Nepper, the actor that plays Dank, I don't know if anyone's a fan of the TV show iZombie, but he has a pivotal role as the father of Blaine, one of the the zombies, and he has a pivotal role in the later seasons, and he's still a fascinating actor. Just wild. Wow. He's great in this film. He's a big part of the evolution of of Trudy, certainly. Mm. And meanwhile, her younger sister, Shade, okay, Shade, she seems like she's like maybe 
eighth grade, ninth grade, maybe. I don't know. I, I couldn't yeah. figure that part out. She doesn't seem like super duper young. She's kind of in her like early teenage years, I guess I would say. Shade could not be cuter. I mean, just could not be. She spends her days at the Spanish language movie theater in town, and she's obsessed with this black and white movie Mexican film actress named Elvia Rivero. And she has her posters all over her wall. And she spends her days like going to the movie theater and watching these like high key melodramas that Elvia Rivero's in. And I just love her. You can tell that a lot of her friends from school are a little, they're blonde and beautiful and sort of like vapid. I don't know if vapid's the word, but it's that thing of like she's really sensitive and soulful and she's got great style. And you can tell she's like, I'm different from a lot of the people my age. Okay. Yeah. And she's obsessed with the idea of contacting her real father, who she's never had a relationship with, but she knows that his name is John Evans. And she has this like little tin, like a little cookie tin of like trinkets from him. And one of them is this sort of, you know, a little film reel of like a whole movie that he was in with her and Trudy as babies. And she just looks at it all the time. I mean, it's just like this moment where you're like, you can tell she really wants to know him, but she never has. Shade as a character, I think, is in that moment, because like you said, I'm not sure of her specific age, but she's in that moment where she is like a pre-Trudy Trudy. So you're looking at someone who is searching for her father and is very interested in her mother being with a man that she likes. And I feel like she's in this moment where she's like right on the cusp of deciding how she feels about men based on the men in her life. Yes. And her father's a huge part of that for her. And so I think that that is, it's an unspoken element, but it really translates. I mean, it came through to me loud and clear and watching it this time that like, oh, she is looking for validation from men, not in a sexual way, but in an emotional way. Yeah. The fallout from that, from either receiving it from the wrong man or not receiving it at all, is how you get a Trudy. Yeah. Well, and and also, too, like her interactions with the guys in her life, she sort of tries to get something going with this friend of hers named Darius, who is played by Donovan Leach, who is actually Ione Skye's brother. I don't know if anybody knew that. But he's he kind of works in this retro shop, and he's this kind of glam rock kind of guy, and he's obsessed with Olivia Newton-John. And at one point, Shade thinks that that's what he kind of wants sexually from women as he wants like the Olivia Newton-John type and that's when she comes in with her outfit and her blonde wig and that scene in particular hit me because it was it's so innocent in a way where she's basically like oh like this is a boy that I hang out with and I think I want to kiss him and how do I do that well I guess I have to dress like Olivia Newton-John and maybe he'll <laughs> and maybe he'll like me but eventually you know Shade kind of gravitates towards this guy in town this very sweet Mexican guy named Javier who is played by Jacob Vargas. And, you know, he works at the movie theater that she goes to all the time. And obviously with him, his character, you know, experiences a lot of racism in this town. Mm. And Shade is kind of the only person that isn't shitty to him, really. And they gravitate towards each other because I think they both feel like they're outsiders. And it's very sweet. There's a scene where she goes to his house for the first time and he introduces her to his mother. Gorgeous. The scene of the mother sitting outside of the house, like in the sunshine, is one of the most gorgeous scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Like, truly. I agree. It's stunning. Oh, God, that actress, too. So cool. Yeah. And the thing I love about this movie is that it is very slice of life. It's about these everyday people in their lives interacting with these different people in the town that they live in. And to me, I I think it has a lot in common with this other movie that I love, which is also about a single mom who is also raising a child in the desert. It's called Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've talked about it or maybe brought it up before, but it's extra credit if anybody wants to see it. But I, I feel like it has a lot in common with this movie. But I think a little bit about what you said before is that if I were to sum up what this family, this like mother and her daughters, if I were to sum up what they have in common, and ultimately what I think is a big theme of this film is that I think that the three of them in their own ways, I think they're attempting to have faith in men, even when they've been abandoned and disappointed by them. Right. That's a very relatable concept to me. And they're also navigating their own womanhood in relation to these men in their lives, kind of like what you said before. And Shane is kind of like... The reason I think she's the narrator is that I think that we see that most purely through her eyes. And you definitely see it kind of 
She's the youngest character. She's forming the building blocks of what would become her later, like the Trudy character, the Nora character, right? Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, she does meet up with her real father in kind of like a really, like a weirdly unremarkable like yeah. meeting. Like he basically is like, what's up? You're my daughter. <laughs> Which, again, I also love because Allison Andrews didn't make a meal out of it the way most people do in those moments where it's like the music swells and then it's this big emotional conflict. She's just like, wait, you're my dad? And he's like, yep, what's up? I mean, it's like so real. (laughs) Yeah. And her father is played by the actor James Brolin. And I gotta say, for all you craggy hot hornballs out there, he is hot, hot, hot. In this movie. The mustache, the jean jacket. I mean, you're taking me there. Okay. The craggy hot horn balls. <laughs> but like I said, I mean, there's just so many great things about this film. Like the little touches, like Jay Maskus from Dinosaur Jr. does the soundtrack. And he's in the movie towards the end. Yep. And also just sort of knowing a little bit about Alison Anders' biography, like through the Criterion Channel intro, but just, you know, reading about her and spending a little time with her. I mean, this movie feels very personal. Like a lot of what is happening on screen came from her life mm-hmm. because I know that she was also a single mother and also a victim of sexual assault. And much like Shade, she spent a lot of time in movie theaters, right. you know, passing the time in her life. And so, I don't know, there's something like really nice about knowing how, like especially in these independent movements, like knowing that filmmakers are putting like sort of their personal stories on screen. Like to me, that feels like it's so wonderful. And it's a break from sort of the other kinds of entertainment, which are these like big, huge, like epic stories. Sometimes it's like, it's nice to be like, oh, here's like a little story. It's contained. It's personal. It's, you know, the everyday beats of people's lives. I just love that. This movie is so wonderful. Oh my God. Like, I hope you all watch it if you haven't seen it, because it really is very special. I agree. Beautiful encapsulation. I don't even want to stomp on what you just said by adding anything else, but I completely agree. I think that this is a movie that deserves to be watched. I'm glad it's on the Criterion channel. I'm glad it still gets the accolades that I think it deserves. It's, again, was very formative to me to see how someone could take elements of their life and bring it to a narrative that feels as full as the life itself feels. Yes. Well, oh my God, your movie. Beautiful. It is a fucking classic. I'm just throwing that out there. This shit is a goddamn classic. (laughs) (laughs) My choice for our theme of Don't Call It a Comeback, this film was released in 1962. It was written and directed by Agnes Varda. And it is called Cleo from five to seven. C'est donc si grave. J'ai vu le cancer. Elle est perdue. Si c'est ça, je me tuerai. Encore un truc pour qu'on te dise qu'on t'aime. C'est elle. C'est vous, mademoiselle. Moi qui aime tant votre voix. Before I get into this film, I want to talk about the director, the writer. Agnes Varda, who, you, as you mentioned earlier, is iconic in the truest sense of the word, has had a very long and storied career. She died in 2019, mm. but between her feature films and her shorts, she directed over 40 films. She's Belgian. She's this, this Belgian-born French director. What I really love about her is that she was a pioneer in French New Wave, which for so much of my life, that phrasing and that terminology and that thought was attributed to men who worked in that genre. So Jean-Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut, and Jacques Demy, who was actually her husband, they were married until he died in 1990. But that whole genre, like French New Wave, was always attributed to men. And, you know, occasionally they were, you'd focus on an actor or actress, but what Agnes Varda was doing is revolutionary now. So imagine having a film come out in 1955, 1962, where she's taking this French New Wave school of thought, which is very experimental, doesn't shy away from political statements, digs into existentialism, and does this at a time when it's not only unheard of in film, and they're revolutionizing film, but it's revolutionary in terms of how women were seen in film. Mm -hmm. And Varda had a strong background in photography, which is why, for me, some of her films just have such a distinct look because she pauses on a lot of actors and moments that could just be framed portraits. There's a ton of information out there about her. Like, you know, as per usual, I'm not going to dig into 
a bunch of it, but there's a really great interview with her in The Gentlewoman, which I believe is on their website. There's also a really great interview with her in The Believer. She talks to Sheila Hetty, and she's just a great interview subject because she's so... She's just got this like really laissez-faire kind of cool pointed way of talking about her life. And she's also the subject of a documentary, maybe a couple documentaries. But I think that she herself was so, she was able to be as revolutionary as she was because she was very thoughtful about what she wanted to see on screen. And one of the reasons I chose this particular film and wanted to discuss her this month is that I think it's important to feature women and to feature directors who use their cameras as narrative devices to tell stories from and of their own lives. But I also think it's important to kind of let people know that they don't have to be afraid of French New Wave or experimental film. Because I'll, I'll tell you from personal experience, the way that most people talk about French New Wave makes me want to fucking die. <laughs> Like, I would rather fucking chew tinfoil than listen to most people talk about French New Wave because it's very elite. <laughs> like, people get really, like, elitist and uppity about it. And, yeah, there's a lot under the surface if you're looking to expand your knowledge base, if you're looking to kind of dig into what that movement was all about. But you should also be able to just watch a good fucking movie without having to know what Anna Karina's fart smelled like. <laughs> and this is a good fucking movie. <laughs> I want to say two things. To that point. First, I think Anna Karina's farts probably smell like cigarettes. I'm just going to throw that out there. 100%. Stale ones. Stale ones. <laughs> That's a new low for us, by the way, on this podcast, <laughs> I want to say. I, I, I'm enjoying it, but I'm just saying that we are talking about the way someone's farts smell. Um, second, <laughs> I totally understand. I just, I just want to throw this out there. I totally understand your thoughts on this because, first of all, I feel like French New Wave generally is sort of like really kind of the first foray into a lot of people's sort of quote-unquote cinephile culture or, you know, it certainly was for me. Right. Like, I remember learning about French New Way very early in college and it was like the first time that I ever got introduced to foreign film. It's a very like right. easy entry point to world cinema, to quote unquote cinephile culture, right? Right. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think that there was really great distribution. We talk mm -hmm. about this a lot. But also, there's a lot of people, and it's a lot of characters, and a lot of great... These movies are great, don't get me wrong. But I also think it is intimidating for people, because it feels so big and so important, and so, you know, largely male. And it's a, it's all about these beautiful French 60s women, and they were muses to a lot of these directors. Mm -hmm. And these movies are very kind of political and experimental, and so... I think it, it is intimidating. And I think that there's this moment too, like as a young person, especially where you're like, oh, I'm into this. I get it. Mm -hmm. It's really kind of the first time that I ever felt elitist about anything. And I was like, <laughs> I'm savoring it. Fuck. <laughs> Give me this one thing. <laughs> like, I'm 19 years old. I like something cool. And I want to know that about myself. And then as I've gotten older, I've realized that, yeah, that is something that I've grown out of entirely. And you realize there is so much more to film than French New Wave in that way, right? Yeah. But I think it's really great that you... I'm so glad that you feel like this is the space to sort of say that because I think a lot of people feel that way. And I think a lot of... It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to feel yeah. intimidated by film school bullshit. And I just wanted to say that that's, I'm glad that you said that because I think a lot of people can relate. Thank you so much because I feel like it also, I'm hoping that it helps people to know that as much as we love film and talk about film, that we both have felt that at moments. And I think it would be a shame if someone didn't get to experience a movie made by Agnes Varda because they feel like it would be too highbrow or too highfalutin or too anything. Yeah. You know, I want people to feel free to dip a toe in and you still might not like it. That's fine. Yeah. But like, I just don't think there's any reason for this to be a prohibitive sort of genre for people because I, don't, I think there's a lot there that might be discussed in a very elitist way, but isn't elitist at its core. Like the art itself is not elitist. <laughs> so, yeah. And again, I love when people are very knowledgeable about things and they have that knowledge to share. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying, because again, if you like this movie, there's so much for you to explore. Yeah. And I think that is, as someone who picks an intellectual hobby for herself every year, I love nothing more than that. Yeah. But I do think that sometimes you have to crack the door open for people. And I'm hoping that this does that for people who are nervous about it. Totally. Sometimes you do realize that things that you deem very heady or intellectual, it's oftentimes just to kind of 
patina or something. You know, it's like yeah. this thing where it's like, well, if you strip it back and you just t- sort of understand that it is a film and it, it doesn't have to be overwhelming and it, you know, I just feel like you're doing a, a good job here of walking us through that and I love it, so... Thank you. Well, I'm going to walk you through it even more by giving you a one-sentence synopsis of this movie. So Cleo from 5 to 7 is about a young French singer who is forced to consider the scope and shape of her life during the two hours she spends waiting for the results of some medical tests to confirm whether or not she has cancer. So right off the bat, that to me is a very interesting framework for a film. Like the two hours of a woman in nineteen in the nineteen early nineteen sixties mm-hmm. trying to figure out if they have cancer or not, and thinking about like what impact that would have on her life if she does have it. Like I'm just instantly in on that alone. Yeah, the movie takes place in real time. It's not like filmed all at once, but it takes place in real time so that you can get a real sense of the dread that comes with waiting for bad news. And the film has some interior dialogue of the characters, which I like because it's just enough to place you in the framework, but it's not enough to overwhelm what's happening on the screen. So it's not like every character, you're inside their head every minute. It's just enough to kind of punctuate a moment. And like I said before, this film feels revolutionary to me now. (laughs) So just imagine how revolutionary it was when it was released. Yes. And, you know, again, I wanted to kind of shine a light on a director who is not just a woman director, but a woman director who showcased women's lives and thoughts at a time when it was unheard of. So at the start of this film, Cleo is at a tarot reading, which I know we already love. (laughs) (laughs) We love some witch shit. Love. (laughs) (laughs) And this tarot reading is not going well. She is like, yeah, shit's going down. Like, you are in for some fucking bad news. But from that reading and the way that Cleo leaves that room, you get to really see that this is someone who's kind of erratic and self-centered and beauty-obsessed. And basically, like, this potential diagnosis could not have happened to a worse person. (laughs) Like, she is not equipped to handle even thinking about getting this news. So that's really what a lot of the film is about is like watching this woman who's so obsessed with her own beauty and her own image really trying to wrestle with what is going to happen who am i going to become if i get this news so the setup is fantastic and you know there's many essays about the tarot card reading at the beginning which you can find if you if you like but i think that again just in terms of the setup of a film about a woman's life and thoughts It's really cool that Varda dug into some mysticism here because I think that a lot of us are really into and tied to kind of the earthy, mystical elements of trying to understand our own lives. Mm -hmm. So I love that. And I think the next few scenes, the way the movie's broken up, it's broken up into chapters that take place in, in chunks of time. And you're really seeing Cleo throughout her day, like, you know, how she's dealing with her friends and who's helping her with this news, who she keeps the news from, you know, these kind of wild and wonderful non sequiturs that happen to her. So the first person that we see is her friend, Angel. And this friend, look, I just want to say, is a highly superstitious friend your best bet when you're waiting for test results? Because Angel is just like, look, bitch, never buy or carry anything new on Tuesdays. Like, she is just immediately just like, yeah, it could be bad. It could be really bad. And I'm like, damn, you need another friend right now in this moment. I don't need any of this right now. I am on edge. Let's just not talk about anything like this. (laughs) But that's also why I love this character, because this is a, a friend who comes out of the gate being like, yeah, Cleo's a pain in the ass. She's, like, so fucking neurotic. But then you see her, as they go back to Cleo's apartment, you see her really trying to care for this friend. And she's caring for her in the way that she knows how, which is, like, very pointed and tough. Mm -hmm. And telling her things like, you know, don't tell your lover that you're sick because that ain't where it's at. Like, he can't take care of you. He doesn't want to hear this shit. So she's giving her, like, real tough love before she even knows if that's what this person needs. But that's what... She is. She's a tough love person. Yeah. And I think it's kind of cool that she, you know, they go hat shopping and Cleo is kind of like, wants to buy this hat. And Angela's like, don't buy that hat. It's Tuesday. But again, in a very subtle way, what you're seeing there is Cleo is trying to find a way to like look to the future 
because she doesn't know what kind of future she's going to have or if she's going to have a future at all. So her friend is really trying to squash it and be like, stay in the moment. Yeah. But Cleo's kind of like, well, if I buy this hat for the winter, even though it's summertime, I might have a chance to wear it. Right. So it's kind of a very cool interplay happening there. It's really subtle, but I just really appreciate it about so many moments in this film. And then you're really seeing... You know, again, Angela's rough as fuck. Like she's like, I don't think you're tough enough on men. Like I don't think you're hard enough on them, because you're seeing Cleo kind of reconsidering her relationship with this lover that she has, who's very attentive and seems to care about her, but she's not close enough to him to feel like she can be vulnerable. Right. And that's what most relationships that work come down to is your vulnerability and your ability to let someone care for you. So at her moment of the highest need, she's realizing she doesn't have this with this guy. So what this two hours is doing for her is we're really seeing her go through this whirlwind because she's reckoning with how people see her, how she sees herself. In her inner dialogue, you can tell she doesn't want to continue being treated like a spoiled child, but she keeps acting like one anyway. (laughs) So she's really in this moment where I think she's looking to the people in her life as she travels through this movie to see what kind of person she could be to make her more comfortable with this potential diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, too, like the men that she sort of interacts with, like the men that she knows, but also the strangers that she meets. Mm. It feels like a lot of them are sort of reducing her to like a very specific role. Like she's just this kind of beautiful singer. Right. They kind of almost don't believe her, you know, in a lot of ways when she tells them, I don't feel well, I'm sick or whatever. And granted, I mean, she doesn't at the moment she's in the moment with them. She doesn't technically know if she is. But it just, to me, seems like, okay, you could tell that her entire life, men have always just sort of reduced her to just being this, like, pretty girl. And, like, she's not to be believed when she tells people things. Like, she's feeling sick or she's Mm -hmm. this and that. And it's depressing. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, wow, here she's walking around town basically being like, I don't feel good. And all these guys are just like, eh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you're pretty. Who cares? You know, you're a crazy lady. (laughs) You're pretty. There's nothing that's, that exemplifies that more than that scene where she's in her apartment and those two musicians come over and they're like, why are you in bed? Are you sick? And she's like, actually, yeah. And they're like, well, fuck you. Get up and like, we're going to play the piano and make jokes and like, right. totally not taking her seriously at all. And she gets up and is trying to do the, the thing and she ends up singing this very mournful song. It's just gorgeous. And then they go right back into their fucking comedy routine of, like, not taking her seriously and talking about her looks and reducing her. And I think that this is a a movie that is really about a woman starting to fight against that reduction. Yeah. I love it. Again, there are a lot of non sequiturs. She has this one friend who's fucking hilarious, who is a, a nude model And she just got her driver's license and she drives her car by using her arm to do turn signals. And the whole time she's like, yeah, I can't drive, whatever. (laughs) But you see, you can see Cleo like really having fun. And you want that for her. Like, I want you to not spend this two hours being so pent up. Yeah. So those moments of release that she gives herself feel really good as a viewer because like you said it could be really depressing to watch how people treat her Mm -hmm. and then she's just seeing these weird things like some dudes just eating live frogs like Paris was just fucking wild in the (laughs) 60s he's like Marta never comes back to that moment this dude just swallows three fucking live huge ass frogs and that's it and then vomits water up like that I I was like fucking rocked by that I was like what the fuck (laughs) Just like all of a sudden he swallows these frogs and all of a sudden it's just like and there's like this waterfall of water that comes out of his mouth on the street in front of everyone. On the street. No CGI. No fucking, (laughs) like, you know that dude just ate those fucking frogs. (laughs) On the street. Fucking wild. There was a baby in an incubator at some point just being carried down the street. Early 60s were fucking wild. Wild. (laughs) Cleo's on this train with this man that she's met in this park. And they're starting to talk about love and they're starting to be knowledgeable about each other. And I think that at first he's very attracted to her beauty. And then as their moment goes on, you realize that he kind of has more to offer. And what's cool about this character is that he is a soldier. And Varda does not shy away from talking about the Algerian War. And, you know, again, like this is part of French New Wave where she was not shying away from talking about things that were of the moment. And so this soldier is kind of like... 
you know, I'm in a place where it's my job to risk my life. And you don't know if you're going to be, if your life is at risk right now, Cleo. Mm. So maybe just enjoy this and calm down. I'll take you to the doctor and you take me to the train station. But the thing that comes out of that conversation, because it goes on for a while with them, like they spend a lot of time together. And she says something during that conversation at some point, she says, you know, today everything amazes me. And I feel like as this movie goes on, there's a lightness that she's being infused with. Mm-hmm. And she's doing that thing that we can't help but do when we're on the verge of getting potentially bad news, where you start, she's starting to finally see her place in the world is bigger than herself. Mm. There's been a real contraction to her life. Pretty singer Paris, like that was her thing. And now there's been this expansion. Just in this two hours that you spent with this character, you can see this real expansion and how she looks at, she's finally looking at the world. So again, woman directing in 1962, bringing that shit to the table, unheard of. Yeah. Unheard of. And it's a beautiful film and it's funny and it's sweet and it's sad and it's just a ride. I love it. It's a fucking cool, rad movie. I couldn't agree more. I mean, stylistically, it feels like it, like I said at the beginning, it really influenced so much, especially modern directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one thing I think about the French New Wave that really was like a very revolutionary thing, which is that, you know, they basically took the formalism out of movie making in that way that we had always seen in like classic Hollywood, right? Where it felt very like, in the moment and there's you know jump cuts and sort of like interesting camera angles handheld cameras like it's very natural seeming and i feel like this movie is the best example of that i mean it looks fantastic but it's also got this like really kind of natural energy to it that like i feel like a lot of people copied and have copied since and you know obviously again setting the table for so much in film that we see today and you know agnes varda is like it's funny because she she was so iconic, even like in her own life. Like she had this haircut that I think everybody remembers. I've seen women with this haircut. Like I've seen people try yes. to get the Agnes Varda like red dyed red bowl cut. She rocked that shit to the end. I love it. To the end. And also the number one cat lady of all time. <laughs> Look, there are cats in this movie. There are two of them. Two cats hanging out in the background. Oh my God, the the scene where Cleo goes back to her apartment and she's doing that thing where she's like, she puts on a robe and then she's like hanging from that pull-up bar. And there's this tiny little baby cat in the background doing like flips. And I was like, oh. so cute. (laughs) Love a cat lady. I love a cat lady. Love a cat lady. And she is the A number one. Like she has cats in all of her films and it's in her like, you know, production company iconography and stuff. And she's so awesome. And like, yeah, I'm so glad you picked this movie because I feel like these two movies together, I mean, obviously if you probably talked to Alison Anders, she would, absolutely point to somebody like Agnes Varda being, you know, an inspiration for her. And I think it's great that this is a a great example of two women directors who worked and had worked for a very long time. Allison still working. Agnes Varda was making movies and appearing in public right before she died. Mm -hmm. It's great because it, it really shows that like, as a woman, you can actually have longevity in the business and you actually can make like a lot of great creative contributions. And they're both like, as directors, some of my favorites, and I'm just so excited we got to talk about them. Me too. And I think you you just made a really good point that something I hadn't considered, but I think is true, which is that women directors, their films are often in conversation with each other. Mm-hmm. And when men direct films, they're often in competition with each other. Yeah. And I think I'd rather have the conversation. Totally agree. Totally agree. And uh, we're going to have some more next week. So please, please stay tuned. If you uh, if you liked this episode or if you just want to email us at all about anything, we're at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. We would love questions for bonus episodes. Again, we're going to solicit that because we actually love reading your letters and cracking up at some of the predicaments that you've been in. Like movie, movie theater predicaments especially. Man, that shit makes me laugh so hard. It's so good. So and we also good. have a P- we have a PO box too, which I think is on the link tree. But just in yeah. case you want to send us snail mail, that's an option. And we did get some snail mail. Did we mention this last week already about the cups? We did, but we still haven't figured out who sent them. Yes. <laughs> 
So if you sent us mugs with birds on them, know that one, made our day, but two, we'd like to know who you are. <laughs> yeah, speaking of birds, we I know we talked about birds at the beginning of the episode, but it was so great to get that. So thank you, whoever said. Thank you. And look, you can find us on our social media. We are at Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And also take a moment to hop over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review and subscribe, especially review and rate. Actually, do all of it. Rate, review, and subscribe. But we, we do <laughs> post your reviews occasionally on our social media. So we like to read those. You guys are very, very supportive of us, and we can't thank you enough. Yes. And, you know, if you want some merch from us, uh, we've got it at the Exactly Right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And if you want even more from us, we've got a bunch of bonus episodes up at Stitcher Premium exclusively. And you can use the promo code SAW for a free month. That's right. So, Danielle, would you like to tell everybody what our movies are for next week? Oh, I would love to. So for next week, we have given you the assignment of watching A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night from 2014 and Just Another Girl on the IRT from 1992. Correct. And I know we said we're doing a couple Women's History Month episodes, but there's also another theme in there. So you got to guess it. Got to guess it. It's not just women's history. Yes. <laughs> You know, we always like to give you that extra surprise. We be like that. All right. Well, you know what? Thanks again, Danielle, for picking great movies, for talking with us, for being with me again on this podcast. I really appreciate it. So excited. I can't wait until you move in. (laughs) Keep feeding those birds. And I'll see you soon. (laughs) Bye. been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Samarosi. Our engineer is Ryo Baum. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. You can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 